HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2017. Cheers. Amendment 18, Section 1. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The story of the noble experiment of prohibition in the United States is actually a couple dozen stories rolled into one. Stories like this often are. It's a story about a deadlocked political system finally deciding it had to agree on something, anything really, to show that it could still get things done around here. It's a story of a small, vocal minority forcing its agenda on the rest of the country. It's about corruption, two-facedness, racism. In a way, it's a story about the worst in all of us, a desire to control the will of other people. And that's an important story, but it's not the story we're going to tell today. Because despite what you might expect from a podcast where we spend 45-ish minutes each month talking about alcohol, the story of the 13 years where America couldn't drink isn't a sad story. It's a story about hope and perseverance and doing the right thing, even if everybody else calls it wrong. It's about silver linings and making lemonade and then taking that lemonade and mixing it with tequila and triple sec and just a little bit of agave syrup to make one hell of a delicious new cocktail. In short, it's a happy story. And not just because we won, but because we, as a nation, won in a unique and beautiful way that only we could. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Bar None, the podcast where we discuss the history of our favorite drinks and how what we're drinking shapes history. And today, we're going to be talking about the 13 years and a couple months when America wasn't drinking. Or rather, wasn't drinking, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It was a hard time for the craft, sure, but it was also a time of surprising innovation, of creativity bred from constraints, like trying to write an entire short story without the letter O, or trying to make a delicious dinner for two after the grocery store's closed and all you've got in the fridge are collard greens and a hunk of old cheese. And there really isn't a better example of this than the margarita, which, if you think about it, is kind of a weird Frankenstein-y concoction of different ingredients from France and Mexico that almost certainly wouldn't be America's favorite cocktail today if it hadn't been illegal 90 years ago. See, there's this massive body of work from the turn of the century, the last century, that is, with bartenders and anthropologists claiming tequila tastes like gasoline and calling it Mexican whiskey, which I'm pretty sure they didn't mean as a compliment. And yet Nielsen, the TV ratings folks, recently ran a poll which crowned Mexican whiskey as America's favorite spirit and the margarita as its favorite cocktail. Which I'm sure would have been tough to conceive of in 1920, that in less than 100 years we'd go from crapping on this stuff to mixing it with French liqueur to loving it. But the chain of events that led us here started that year with a very controversial and improbable piece of legislation. It's almost inconceivable now that 
this group of people made alcohol legal in the United States. I mean, uh, as we've seen, Congress can barely agree on anything. You know, to think that they could actually agree on something that all of them considered okay. You know, for the most part, they were bullied into it. In order to understand prohibition, you have to ask this question. How did a small, vocal, righteously indignant cohort of mostly rural, mostly Protestant activists manage to take control of the most important document in American history? At least that's the question we asked Derek Brown. He owns a series of really cool, really historically-minded cocktail bars in Washington, D.C., where he's also the chief spirits advisor to the National Archives. It's like, you're against this, right? You're against it. And they're like, absolutely. And what they meant by that was, I'm against it for the lower classes. I'm against this for immigrants. I'm against this for various subgroups. Um, but it's okay for me, you know? And that, that was the weird part of Prohibition, is it really was not considered among an elite group wrong to drink, and yet they absolutely contributed to banning it. The thing about America, and really the world in the 19-teens, is that it had just been dragged kicking and screaming into the modern era. Modern technology like cars, planes, tanks, machine guns, they just run roughshod over a couple hundred years of status quo in World War I. More than anything else, the Great War showed the world that given half the chance, modern tactics and modern technology could kick the ever-loving crap out of the way we'd been stubbornly doing things for the past couple centuries. And now stateside, you had the emergence of the Anti-Saloon League, a radical temperance group wondering if maybe, just maybe, the same thing could work in politics. They were bullied into it by temperance advocates. And um, I don't know if it was entirely sort of like this sort of core Midwest values driven that, that pushed it. It was actually interesting that the first Anti-Saloon League meeting was here in Washington, D.C. at the Calvary Baptist Church. Pressure politics, you know vote for minimum sentences or you're soft on crime, renew the Patriot Act to be tough on terror, didn't really exist in an organized populist sense until the League started using them. And it turned out they were shockingly effective. Lobbying was nothing new. That was almost as old as American politics itself. And by the way, it was also invented in a Washington, D.C. bar, the lobby of the Willard Hotel, to be precise, about eight blocks away from Calvary Baptist. But a grassroots movement with a single specific goal driven by morals, not money, that was new. And it turns out it was pretty hard to say no to. The League succeeded in allying itself with a number of local politicians. And by the time National Prohibition came into effect in 1920, a number of counties and even entire states had already been dry for several years. Working alongside the Anti-Saloon League and all this was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, whose stated purpose was to create a sober and pure world through abstinence, purity, and evangelism. Sounds familiar, right? Just another organization trying to reform society from the ground up with good, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideals. I'm sure it started out that way. Early writings from the group share that same icky, xenophobic sheen that colors the Anti-Saloon League's feelings towards its two favorite punching bags, Catholics and immigrants. But along the way, something interesting happened. The group elected an educator, a woman named Frances Willard, as its second president. And once it did, its mission, its focus, and its energy shifted in a direction that can really only be described as progressive. I know, it's a weird word to use in connection with a movement committed to limiting the rights of free citizens, but bear with me. This is an era where women couldn't vote, which means they couldn't champion legislation to protect women and girls in a male-dominated workforce. They couldn't run a major newspaper, which means they were powerless to combat the rough treatment the word suffragette had received at the hands of the mainstream media. And by and large, they couldn't be breadwinners, which means that the brunt of alcoholism, the wasted paychecks, the unemployment, the abuse, it fell hardest on wives and mothers. And into these conditions steps Frances Willard, college-educated, progressive, feminist. We must choose. Be a child of the past with all its crudities and imperfections, its failures and defeats. Or a child of the future, the future of symmetry and ultimate success. Under her, the Women's Christian Temperance Union expanded the scope of its efforts. It was obviously still pretty focused on temperance, hence the name, 
but it also focused on labor reform, prison reform, minimum wage enforcement, raising the age of consent, an eight-hour workday, immigrant education, and not just the vote, but true and undisputed equality for women. All of which is kind of odd to see wrapped up in a crusade for prohibition, until you consider the fact that many of the fail-safes we have in place today to protect women under the law as equals at this point in time simply did not exist. There was, undeniably still is, a huge amount of damage that can be caused in this world by drink. And temperance, in a lot of ways, was the first weapon that women had to fight back. Frances Willard wouldn't live to see prohibition or women's suffrage come to pass. She would die peacefully in a New York City hotel room at the age of 58, never having lost her faith in the power to make the world a better place. This seems to be the law of progress in everything we do. It moves along a spiral rather than a perpendicular. We seem to be actually going out of the way, and yet it turns out that we were really moving upward all the time. Progress, in other words, is not a straight line. It's not a direct A to B relationship that can be measured linearly. It can be circuitous and halting, and it can line you with a lot of weird allies along the way. But none of that means it isn't worth it. Meanwhile, though, if you did enjoy a cocktail every now and again, and especially if you're one of these young, hip, good-looking tipplers with money to burn, and especially if you had a taste for the finer things, New York City was the place to be. The cocktail, that peculiarly American thing that was taking the world by storm, was entering its golden age, and the Big Apple was the epicenter of the revolution. It was a time of invention and creativity and concentrated merriment of fast men and grass widows, to borrow one of the titles from Henry Llewellyn Williams' hit novel, Gay Life in New York. The book, published in 1866, is pretty standard fare for its day, but it's important to us because it contains the very first mention of this sort of proto-drink, a primordial ancestor to many modern-day favorites known as the Daisy. The scene looks like this. Charlie is out of love, out of luck, and depressed. Good thing he has good friend Harry to do what good friends have been doing since time immemorial. He orders him a drink. Three cocktails. Strong, cold, and plenty of it. Stop, stop. No cocktails for me. I'll take a glass of lemonade. A glass of what? <laughs> lemonade. Well, that's a good thing for a man in the dumps. Wouldn't you rather have a concentrated zephyr in a daisy or an iced dewdrop? Nonsense, man. Lemonade, indeed. The daisy was a somewhat ethereal thing for a little while, some places mixing it with a little bit of this, some with a dash of that, some with entirely secret ingredients now lost to history. And its first appearance in a recipe book doesn't do a whole lot to solve the mystery of its components either. Courtesy once again of Jerry Thomas, that gilded-era golden boy who will doubtless be familiar to regular listeners of our show, the recipe calls for one teaspoon of gum syrup, one and a half teaspoons of orange cordial, the juice of half a lemon, and two ounces of... Well, it depends on which version of the drink you're looking at, because he published a bunch of them. You could have it with rum, gin, whiskey, basically whatever you happen to have on hand and felt like drinking at the time. Now, this is interesting because most drinks today don't really have this neat plug-and-play feature. Sure, you can mess around with the main ingredients a little bit in the name of experimentation, but we no longer live in an age where you can just walk up to a bar and order a brandy old-fashioned or a rum martini without getting at least a handful of sideways glances. The daisy, on the other hand, is this sort of neat trilobite of the cocktail world. Nowadays almost entirely extinct, you can see its DNA in a number of beloved modern favorites. For example, if you're one of those jazz-age types who like sipping cocktails on the Seine, you might enjoy a daisy made with French cognac, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But if you like your oasis a little more tropical, you can always try a tequila daisy while riding out the noble experiment south of the border. That being said, it's worth pointing out that very few bartenders in the 19th century even acknowledged tequila as an option when making drinks. Whether this is because they looked down on agave spirits or just had no idea they existed is tough to say. 
what we can say for certain is that for some reason or another, tequila has this weird knack for being one of the most misunderstood spirits in the cocktail firmament. One of the most misunderstood spirits in the world of spirits. And, um, you know, if we go back into the uh, how that happened and why this uh, negative connotation of the word tequila has for many people, um, it's there are reasons, there are historical reasons. For a couple generations back in the, from the 1990s back into the 1940s, uh, the only tequilas that we were um, able to buy in the United States, they were mixtos. They were very, very cheap, very low quality uh, tequilas. David Suropiñera is the president of Siembra Spirits as well as a founding president of the Tequila Interchange Project. He spent most of his professional life trying to get Mexican spirits and cuisine the respect that they deserve, which he tells me could often be an uphill battle. I remember when I opened, uh, I have a, a restaurant here in Philadelphia that we've been, open, we've been operating for 30 years. When I opened the restaurant in, in 1986, um, I mean, tequila was a bad word. I mean, and I made the mistake to call the restaurant tequila's restaurant, <laughs> you know. So a lot of people have a lot of hard time trying to uh, adventure inside this restaurant that was, you know, having that name, you know. Uh, because a lot of people, they were very um, suspicious about the quality that that restaurant will offer using the name tequilas. This is kind of sad when you think about it, because there's a very good chance that tequila and its counterpart mezcal, a smokier spirit made by a slightly different process of agave distillation, predate Western contact in Mexico. Many people, including David, believe that not only could distillation have happened in pre-conquistador Central America, it's entirely likely that it did. There was these findings in a, um, the state of Colima, where they have vessels that are known as capacha vessels, where they make uh, replicas of those vessels. And they were able to obtain high-proof alcohol from uh, fermented juices of, of agave. So, you know, these vessels, they, were, they have a very unique design that um, are identical as vessels they were used in China thousands of years ago. And, and there is a very extended research on the Chinese vessels. And um, they are 100% sure that those vessels they were used for distillation. Now, these vessels that were found in Colima, they are identical. The design, there are two chambers connected by three hollow tubes. And, um, you know, it's a very straightforward design to indicate that there was the use wire for distillation. Sadly for all of this, condescension towards agave spirits didn't begin in Philly in the 1980s. It goes as far back as 1897, when anthropologist Isabel N. Catlin published this snarky little tidbit in an article for Scientific American called Beverages of Mexico. Mezcal is described as tasting like a mixture of gasoline, gin, and electricity. Tequila is even worse. It is said to inspire murder, riot, and revolution. Several Michigan editors who lately visited the sister republic wandered into a cantina in the city of Puebla one evening and called for a drink apiece of the tequila. Each took a taste, felt his hair stand erect, his toes curl up, and his skin wrinkle all over his body and was wise enough to leave the glass unfinished. Not one of them wished that time that Providence had endowed him with greater capacity. Looking at Catlin's paper, you can already see the gloomy clouds of prohibition gathering on the horizon. The close-mindedness, the patronizing tone, the subtle patina of racism that I'm not even sure the author herself was aware of, it's all in there, both in the temperance movement and in this article, which was published by a well-respected periodical dedicated to science. And this is the point where our story gets a little gloomy, with the passing of the 18th Amendment and a world-class cadre of bartenders displaced overnight. But it's going to get better. I promise. For proof, look to the ever-resilient daisy, or if you want to use the Spanish word for it, 
Margarita Margarita This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. On January 16, 1919, having been ratified by the House, the Senate, and three-quarters of the states, the 18th Amendment became law. It didn't actually outlaw drinking per se, just its sale, manufacture, transportation, importation, and exportation, so there's that. Later that year, Congress introduced the Volstead Act, a piece of legislation designed to make the new law of the land enforceable. The bill was named after a Republican congressman, but it was authored by a man named Wayne Wheeler, a temperance attorney who had a drunken farmhand lodge a pitchfork in his leg at a very young age and had nursed a fairly adversarial relationship with drink ever since. Wheeler was a bloodhound. He worked tirelessly his entire professional life for his cause, gradually winning more and more elections by encouraging voters to back dry candidates, no matter what their party. The signing of the Volstead Act was the high-water mark of his career, and it was around this time that his former publicity secretary described him thusly. Wayne B. Wheeler controlled six Congresses, dictated to two presidents of the United States, directed legislation in most of the states of the Union, picked the candidates for the more important elective state and federal offices, held the balance of power in both Republican and Democratic parties, distributed more patronage than any dozen other men, supervised a federal bureau from outside without official authority, and was recognized by friend and foe alike as the most masterful and powerful single individual in the United States. One of those presidents, by the way, vetoed Wheeler's bill, but it was an entirely symbolic gesture. The House overrode his veto later that afternoon, and the Senate did the same the day after that. But hey, thanks for trying, Woodrow. At midnight on January 17, 1920, the Volstead Act took effect. 59 minutes later, the Volstead Act was broken for the first time in documented history, as six armed robbers made off with $100,000 of whiskey from a freight train in Chicago. The booze, allegedly, was for medicinal purposes, but anybody who knows anything about the history of crime in America will know that this infringement on the Volstead Act wouldn't be the last. Meanwhile, if you were an average citizen who wanted a drink and you didn't want to break the law to get it, you only really had one option. Get out of there. And that is exactly what thousands of Americans did. Many of them settled in Paris, the famous expatriates of the lost generation. And where Americans went, they brought the art of the cocktail with them. We often refer to it as the golden age of bartending, sometime between the 1860s and when Prohibition happened. That was when we had the most sort of like um, elaborate drinks. Those were when we had drinks that were um, the classics that we have today. The Daiquiri, the Manhattan, the Martini. All of those came about during that period, so it was a wonderful time. And bartenders were exceptionally skilled in their craft. They were 
they were considered rock stars in a way. They were they were celebrities, and so essentially um, that ended with prohibition, which of course is a is a negative or bad thing. But many of those bartenders got a chance to go abroad now, and you saw the already a burgeoning sort of American bar movement in Europe, um, in in England and France and Italy. Um, but now you had bartenders really going out uh, to Latin America, um, to South America, to um, uh, Europe, and spreading the craft. Where we went, our bartenders went. And where our bartenders went, the daisy went. Once it settled in Paris and got comfortable with a nice rich base of French cognac, it became known as the sidecar in such places as Harry's New York Bar and the Select. But go a few miles south of San Diego, you got an entirely new drink. And if you liked your drinking south of the border, the best, really, the only name in the game was Tijuana. It was 1928, and the once sleepy town of Tijuana was gathered for opening day of a building that would make their city immortal. It was less than 15 years since the population of the town cracked four figures, less than 40 since it hadn't been a town at all. But the next year, a reporter visited the building being unveiled that day, the Agua Caliente Casino, and remarked that there isn't another place on the continent outside of a U.S. mint where you can see so much money piled up before your eyes at one time. Agua Caliente was the most opulent building of its age, the blueprint for Las Vegas, and it cost about $10 million to build. That's a cool $137 million in 21st century dollars. It had Baccarat, Roulette, Faro, a racetrack, a golf course, a spa fed by nearby hot springs, hence the name, a small landing strip for airplanes, and the world's longest bar. There's that drink they were known for, too, the Tequila Sunrise, whose original recipe sadly hasn't survived into modernity, and so there's no way to tell if it's the same concoction of liquor, grenadine, and OJ that's particularly popular with the newly 21 set. Detractors, some of whom I'm sure were pissed off anti-salooners and raged that Americans kept drinking, were quick to saddle Tijuana with the nickname Satan's Playground. Some of them even took it one step further and put the slogan on signposts between San Diego and Agua Caliente, kind of like those tacky billboards for the modern day south of the border that litter I-95 for hundreds of miles in either direction. The casino was a palace a mission Moorish fusion of influences designed by a 19-year-old architect and covering almost 700 acres. Everybody who was anybody stayed there. Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, Bing Crosby, Gary Cooper, Jean Harlow. A young singer and dancer named Margarita Cancino got her start there, but before you get any ideas about her connection to this episode's featured drink, you should know that it wasn't long before she moved her act to Hollywood and Americanized her name to Rita Hayworth. Oh, and even though it wasn't actually invented at Agua Caliente, a competing Tijuana resort called Caesar soon became famous for an eponymous dish, which we still refer to today as a Caesar salad. If there's one constant truth I've found working on this show, it's that Americans, regardless of age, era, or circumstance, seem to despise the trying of new things. Now, don't confuse that with taking existing things and doing something new with them. We're awesome at that. See the entire craft of cocktail bartending. I'm talking about stepping outside of the box and trying something entirely novel. I can't really blame them. The unknown, after all, is inherently scary. Sometimes it takes something big, like, say, an entire sector of industry disappearing overnight, to open us up to something new. Tijuana may have been a haven of gambling and drunkenness and prostitution, a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but it got us out of our comfort zone, and it got us trying new things, weird things, that we never would have allowed near our citrus and triple sec otherwise. So, in the spirit of our forebears, I decided to try something new for this podcast. I decided that I was going to try pulque. And for the sake of science and good journalism... I decided to subject a few people close to me to it as well. Polke is fermented agave nectar, the same substance that gives us tequila and mezcal when you distill it. Essentially, polke is to tequila as beer is to whiskey, the fermented sap of a plant which is not, as it turns out, a cactus. It's a member of the order Asparagales, believe it or not, which means that it's more closely related to asparagus and hostas than anything else. Polke was the first beverage ever made from agave, and its roots in pre-Columbian culture are deep. 
One of the few Aztec books not destroyed by the conquistadors shows Maya Huel, the agave goddess, breastfeeding her drunken rabbit children, who I'm pretty sure were suckling on more than just milk. Today, the drink remains widely unknown. It was only after much searching that I eventually found a six-pack in the place where a person with enough perseverance and time can find anything, under the G train in Brooklyn, New York. Still, I couldn't help but wonder why the market for polke was so small, especially considering we live in an era of cultural throwbacks and artisanal beverages. I asked David, and he had this to say. There are pre-bed pulques, and there are wonderful pulques. Uh, I've been tasting some pulques that, that, yes, I don't want to have a second sip. And uh, the first sip, I prefer to spit that sip. And I have pulques that I can drink them all day. You know, we are able to get pulque from Mexico in cans right now, but that doesn't, that doesn't represent the true culture and flavors of, of what pulque is. Sadly, I could only get my hands on the can variety, and I know to come out and say it was terrible on this podcast would be like the kid in elementary school who ate peaches after only eating the gross canned syrupy ones for her entire life. Nevertheless, I was nervous, especially playing with a handicap after hearing what Isabel Catlin had to say on the subject. It is with the feeling of the greatest curiosity that the traveler puts the mug of pulque to his lips for the first time. He has heard so much about it. He has heard it condemned fiercely as Mexico's greatest evil. He has heard it praised highly as nature's best remedy for certain diseases. The traveler is easily persuaded to trade some of his centavos for a mug of pulque, and then he begins to investigate. He sees a bluish-white substance about the consistency of buttermilk. The first sip is not satisfactory. He cannot tell just what it tastes like. Trying again. And again, he comes to the conclusion that the stuff is very like what a combination of yeast, sour milk, and mucilage would be. Usually, he does not finish the first mug, but gives it back to the saleswoman, who laughs heartily at his wry face and immediately fills up the mug to offer some other victim. I wasn't expecting it to look like that. So with all that swimming around in my mind, one hot summer night last August, after tracking down a couple cans at a local grocery store called Mexican 2000, I gathered my girlfriend, her roommates, and my beer nerd buddy in a room with a really loud AC unit. Apologies. Well, cheers, everyone. Cheers. Are you supposed to sip it or down it? Uh, do what feels good, man. We cracked it open, poured it out, cheers, and... I like it. Yeah. It doesn't taste like much. I don't, but it's not bad. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't go out of my way to I don't think it. I want the other five. <laughs> it was pretty good. Not pour out all the beer in your fridge because you never want to drink anything else ever again good, but definitely not as wretched as we were expecting. I have to admit, I was expecting this to be much more wretched than yeah. it actually was. Because especially when I was pouring it, there was, like, these fine little, like, snot tendrils oh, that were coming nice. back to the can from the glass. But... <laughs> Yeah, actually, all told, I would say fairly positive experience across the board. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty benign. Benign. Excellent word. The least benign thing (laughs) in your life. Certifiably inoffensive beverage. (laughs) I'm going to drink more of this because I actually like it. In fact, there was only one thing we all thought it was lacking. Carbonation. The general consensus was that it was good, but could definitely stand to be a little livelier. Good thing my girlfriend's ex had given her a soda stream for Christmas a couple years back. So we picked up the remaining two cans and prepared to send this poor appliance out on a suicide mission. I feel like we're about to destroy your soda stream. <laughs> there's, there's a non-zero chance that the soda stream doesn't work <laughs> after this. As a word of warning, this podcast does not endorse using a soda stream to add extra carbonation to an obscure ancestral fermented beverage. We're all going to that okay, and hold it until it makes a really obnoxious sound. <laughs> that the obnoxious sound? Unless said soda stream was given to your partner by a former lover and you've absolutely no qualms whatsoever about never using it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck, it got on the recorder. Seriously, though, don't ever try this. Anyway, after all that, the result? Is it good? That actually that's, sounds that's, much that's, better. That's, <laughs> that's a gigantic improvement. That is a massive improvement. Yeah, get over here. Come on, try some of this. So, there you have it. Probably nowhere near as good as the real stuff from Mexico, but definitely not as bad as stuck-up 19th century anthropologists would have you believe. 
The results of my little experiment weren't anything earth-shattering, but it achieved something I'm consistently begging my guests to do behind the bar. I tried something new. And I get it. I really do. Stepping out of your comfort zone is, by definition, a little uncomfortable, and something new and untested carries a far greater risk of disappointment than the same thing you always get. But without risk and experimentation, we don't get tequila out of Mexican whiskey or the tequila daisy out of prohibition. In other words, without a leap of faith here and there, all we're ever going to be stuck with is the same old status quo. And that's going to get pretty goddamn boring in a surprisingly short amount of time. But getting back to our main story of innovation and risk, while the rich and famous were living it up at Agua Caliente, the illicit booze trade was getting faster, bolder, and more sophisticated at home. Prohibition did actually work for a few years to curb drinking, per capita. But the crime that grew up around the people who wanted to stay at the party had skyrocketed. And while the lower-tier mobsters had peeled off in the direction of Mexico looking for a piece of the action, famous mafiosos like Al Capone and Bugsy Seagal were getting rich off of the hooch trade. One such gangster, a Mexican national named Juan Guerra, made his fortune and his name go in the other way, running bootleg whiskey north from Rio Grande into southern Texas. All the while, law enforcement was getting craftier, which meant bootleggers needed to get faster. One such outlaw, Robert Glenn Johnson Jr., who went by the much simpler Junior Johnson, discovered his calling evading the authorities. The fourth of seven children, Junior was born into a family so steeped in bootlegging that it was the target of the largest alcohol raid in U.S. history, in which the Fed seized over 400 gallons of moonshine from the family home. As he grew up, Junior gained a reputation for evading the authorities in his souped-up stock cars. He was arrested one time for operating an illegal still, but Johnny Law never once caught up to him while he was on the road. In his own way, Junior Johnson is a living answer to one of the big capital W why questions of the Noble Experiment. Why did Prohibition fail? As time went on, it turned out the authorities just couldn't enforce it. It's one of these things where if you look at the history books, you can just see it's like every year it's kind of losing more and more supporters. The idea is getting a little bit more tarnished and sour. So what was kind of the, what what were the mechanisms that had to go into play to eventually bring about the, the repeal and sort of the downfall of the great experiment? Well, it went wrong. I mean, it went wrong and everybody kind of looked at themselves, I'm sure at one moment were like, what the hell happened? I mean, how did this happen? <laughs> With traditional law enforcement failing, the government got desperate leading to one of the most absurd and tragic incidents of the Noble Experiment on Christmas Eve, 1926. It was just before nightfall when a man came tearing into the emergency room at New York's Bellevue Hospital. He was flushed, gasping, and terrified. He was being chased, he said, by Santa Claus, who was trying to kill him with a baseball bat. It wasn't long before the man was dead. And then another, and another, and another 20 people after that until finally New York City health officials realized what all these victims had in common. They had all drunk the same illicit alcohol after it had intentionally been poisoned by the United States government. Frustrated by the failure of traditional law enforcement, federal officials turned to a new tactic. They knew industrial alcohols were a favorite target of bootleggers looking to cut the laboratory-grade booze into drinkable spirits, so they began deliberately dosing them with lethal agents in the hopes that it would scare people off drinking. It didn't. And by the time Prohibition was repealed in 1933, it's estimated that over 10,000 people had been killed. The government's logic that people will be less likely to do something if it has a marked chance of killing them is sound. And yet, people continued to drink. Which brings us again to another capital W question, why? Derek Brown's explanation is that alcohol isn't just a commodity, like flip-flops or Swiffer pads, which I for one would have no problem never using again if there was even the slightest chance that they would kill me. It's a social technology. It's woven into the fabric of how we relax and grieve and progress and celebrate. It's too much an integral part of who we are to be unplugged just like that at the stroke of midnight. One of the things that alcohol doesn't really get um, credited for, that it's there at some of our most um, intimate and incredible experiences, that, you know, when we're drinking at a wedding and we're celebrating friends and their nuptials, our own nuptials, when we're um, sad and we're at a funeral and we're, we need uh, just a, a little something to bond over and to uh, maybe be focused in that moment, 
Um, alcohol is there for all these experiences, you know, graduation day, um, for um, just meeting a friend and having a drink. I mean, it's really the vast majority of our experiences with alcohol is pretty goddamn kumbaya. And so, inevitably, prohibition failed. The 21st Amendment is unique in that it's A, the only amendment to have been made law by state ratifying conventions instead of Congress, and B, it's the only amendment whose express purpose is to undo another one. And while the Volstead Act might not have been officially repealed until December 5th, 1933, it was dealt a crushing blow earlier that spring when, still fresh off his inauguration, FDR signed the Cullen Act on April 6th. You see, while the wording of the 18th Amendment forbade the sale, importation, distribution, yada 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 of intoxicating liquors, the Cullen Act officially declared that all beer sold at under 3.2% alcohol was legally non-intoxicating. In other words, America could drink beer again. The 21st Amendment legalized all spirits later that year, leading to a sort of unofficial holiday among industry professionals who still never fail to give ourselves a little pat on the back every 5th of December. It also led to a pretty cool brewery out of San Francisco, which, by the way, is the first item which pops up when you type 21st Am into the search engine on Wikipedia. The Constitutional Amendment comes in second. The Cullen Act, meanwhile, lives on in the average American's insatiable thirst for light beer, but that's another episode. I think that uh, there were many forces in there. Most, most of all, people just thought it was a bad idea. And then seeing all the crime spring uh, up around it, um, seeing the fact that it, it really didn't achieve what it was meant to achieve, this sort of um, idyllic society in which you know, crime stops because we stop drinking. It's not innocent, um, but it is not the cause entirely of all of our societal issues. And we learned that really hard with Prohibition <laughs> because, in fact, banning it was worse than having it. Like most people that make a living off of spirits, Derek is quick to list all the reasons why Prohibition was a bad idea. But he's also quick to point out that after all is said and done, there's some definite good that came out of this time in our past. Women also brought about changes in the um, all of a sudden you saw these women advocating for alcohol. And so um, I think that, you know, that's an interesting part of history, uh, that they were, became such a political force. And he's right. Later that same year, after the 18th Amendment went into effect, its successor, the 19th Amendment, guaranteed women the right to vote by banning the denial of suffrage based on sex. The Women's Christian Temperance Union would fade out of favor, as Prohibition did, but the social goals that Frances Willard left behind lived on as women across the United States voted for president for the very first time that fall. As for the margarita, that took a little while longer to get going. Americans may have dipped their toes in the agave stream during Prohibition, but according to David, it took World War II for the spirit to really catch on in the United States. The consumption from 1860s until, you know, 1940s, it was a very modest consumption of tequila. I think it was pretty much flying way under the radar of the consumers. And it's interesting because, the um, you know, during provision, I mean, you will assume that there's a tremendous increase on sales of tequila, but uh, no. The increase of consumption of tequila, it hit us hard in a positive way into Second World War. You know, that's when we see that the consumption in the United States changed drastically, and, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, there's war times, and in war times is always increase of consumption of alcohol, and the lack of spirits and wines from Europe. It was almost impossible to import into the United States to cross the Atlantic, you know, during war times. And the, uh, also the slowdown of production in the distilleries in the United States. So that's when we see a tremendous increase on the demand for tequila. Meanwhile, the tequila daisy crops up in an El Paso newspaper in 1939 and in Syracuse, New York, of all places, that same decade. It wasn't until Esquire magazine made the margarita its drink of the month in December 1953 that it really took off, with its component parts listed as an ounce of tequila, a dash of triple sec, and the juice of half a lime or half a lemon. 
And even then, it would take another 41 years for the old Mr. Boston Bartender's Guide, the unofficial litmus paper of the cocktail world, to give tequila its very own section. In other words, it's 1994 before tequila is no longer lumped in where it doesn't belong. And even then, Mr. Boston remains silent on the age-old lemon versus lime question. Oh, and that Junior Johnson guy? Well, him and some of his bootleg buddies started racing the stock cars they'd built to evade the police for fun, and discovered after Prohibition that they'd developed a taste for it. Not the types to let a silly little thing like legality stand in the way of a good time, a bunch of old bootleggers got together and formed the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, or NASCAR for short. Junior Johnson went on to become one of the sport's most decorated drivers, a fact he owed, he said, to his criminal past. Moonshiners put more time, energy, thought, and love into their cars than any racer ever will. Lose on the track and you go home. Lose with a load of whiskey and you go to jail. It wasn't all good, though. Prohibition did limit drinking on a national level for several years after it was repealed, partially due to changing attitudes and partially because it left behind a tangled mess of weird legislation that we are still trying to unravel today. The three-tiered system of distribution, state-controlled liquor monopolies, the patchwork of wet and dry counties that still dots the American landscape, all of them tiny little hangovers from our 13-year sobriety vendor. Not to mention the criminals that had developed a taste and a talent for the life of organized crime and weren't going to let a silly little thing like legality stand in their way. As for the Agua Caliente crowd, most of them picked up stakes and moved north after Nevada legalized gambling in 1931 to build a new oasis out of the desert. Oh, and that Juan Guetta guy? He moved from booze to marijuana to cocaine and left behind a blueprint for the modern-day Mexican cartel. The agave spirits industry, meanwhile, is facing its own challenges with modernity, the largest of which, oddly enough, might be its own popularity. Tasked with nurturing an inherently slow-moving plant, agave farmers, or humidors, are struggling to keep up with a new global demand for a product that can sometimes take up to 10 years to bloom. That's one of the things David is working on with the Tequila Interchange Project. He and the other members of the organization are dedicated to finding smart, sustainable solutions to modern-day problems like over-farming and biodiversity to secure a future for these beautiful and unique plants. I'm from Guadalajara. I'm from the epicenter of tequila, and tequila is, uh, is part of me. It's a part of who I am. And, you know, I don't know if you know the, the, the uh, uh, meaning of the word tequila, but uh, tequila means... In, it's a Nahuatl word that it means place of work. Uh, and, you know, that's what it was for me, a place of work, a place where I was going to, what I still today, taking care of guests and showing the best possible expressions of Mexican food and, and agave spirits from Mexico. So now, all that's left to do is render a verdict. Given everything that went into it, Everything that came out of it, everything we're still living with today, was prohibition a good thing or a bad thing? And before you weigh in, I want to tell you one last story about the man in the sleeveless Leonard Skinner shirt and the liquor store in the middle of nowhere. This story takes place in Virginia, which is one of 17 states left in the Union that still maintains a monopoly over liquor sales, as is its right per the 21st Amendment. That means that if you want to buy anything stronger than a bottle of wine in the Old Dominion, your party has to get started at an alcoholic beverage control store. I'm inherently inclined to dislike these places. Their shame-inducing fluorescence and low-pile carpets have all the charm and character of a dentist's office. But last summer, a dear friend of mine was marrying her high school sweetheart out in the foothills of the Shenandoah, and that meant my first trip to an ABC store since college. A curious thing to note here. Just because it's a government monopoly does not mean all liquor stores are created equal. An interesting thing happens to the moonshine selection the further you get from a major metropolitan area. It starts out in the specialty aisle, but grows into its own section by the time you hit Warrington. And once you get to Luray, which is a town famous for its caverns and not much else, the moonshine display is floor to ceiling right in front of you the very second you walk in. So there I am, contemplating turning a bottle of moonshine over in my hand, scrutinizing the label. 
When a guy much bigger than me, and keep in mind this doesn't happen to me very often as a 6'3", 220 dude, but a guy who positively dwarfs me in a handmade Skinner tank top strolls over and points at that bottle. It's worth pointing out that the label on this thing sported a black and white image of one of those old Thunder Road stock cars. It's worth pointing out that the liquor inside the bottle was based on an old family recipe from none other than Junior Johnson, who personally had a hand in its creation. It's worth pointing out that the building we were standing in wouldn't have existed, and the product I was scrutinizing wouldn't have been invented if it hadn't been for this massive national failure of an experiment, which means I wouldn't have been standing there as a heavily tattooed classic rock evangelist sidled over and said, man, that stuff's the shit. So I bought it. And I don't even like moonshine very much, but hey, what do we ever stand to gain if we never try anything new, right? Plus, with an endorsement like that, how could I not? Junior's moonshine wasn't amazing, but in its own small, completely non-earth-shattering way, it made me feel something that I hadn't before. And it wasn't terrible. Sometimes in late summer, surrounded by old friends out in the middle of nowhere, that's really all you need to ask for. If you talk to brewers or distillers or bartenders or really anybody who makes their living slinging drinks, the narrative you usually get about the 18th Amendment is that it's this terrible, horrible, awful thing that changed the course of history. But that doesn't really paint the complete picture. Because without the 18th Amendment, we wouldn't have Las Vegas or NASCAR or Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the Caesar Salad, to name just a few of the varied, wonderful, impossibly connected things that came out of Prohibition. In short, it wasn't a terrible, horrible thing that changed history. It's just a thing. And it changed history. Amendment 21, Section 1. The 18th article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Our amazing guests on today's show were Derek Brown and David Suropiniera. And of course, it's my pleasure, as always, to thank our talented voice cast, Mary Myers, Francesca Chilcote, Colin Connor, and Keegan Cassidy. Fun fact, the voice of the Constitution on today's show is a proud holder of a United States green card. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about rum, sugar, lime, the balance between them, and more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.